Hey everyone, before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to hop in here and discuss the top five, bottom five GM destinations podcast that Peter Harling and I did last week. We made reference to a Ottawa Sun article that uh, discussed misappropriated funds with uh, Eugene Melnick's charities and the Ottawa Senators, and a lot of that stuff proved to be false. The Sun, they issued an apology and a correction, and for my part in this, I like I stand by what we said on the podcast, but ultimately... My failing here, I haven't been treating this like journalism. I haven't been holding up myself to journalistic standards. I didn't really vet those articles. I skimmed through them, to be honest, and didn't... I found myself chasing the headline, and that's uh, that's a major failing on my part. And I, you know, I promoted and propagated what proved to be falsehoods about uh, Eugene Melnick, the Ottawa Senators, and the folks at the Oregon Project. So I'm sorry to you, the listener, for that, and I'm sorry to uh, Melnick, the Senators, and the Oregon Project for my part in that. I need to do better, and I hope to as we go forward. Okay, now on to today's episode. Okay, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. Uh, we've got a, a second time guest on here. I'm pleased to be joined by Ian Gooding, managing editor of DauberHockey.com. Ian, howdy. Hey, Steve, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. You know, as, as we kind of touched on uh, b- before we hopped on the pod, I got Pacific and central time zones all discombobulated in my mind. I threw through the link to you about two hours ago, uh, well before the time that we were supposed to be hopping on here. So I went out for a run and now I'm feeling all recharged and refreshed and ready to, to dive into the 2006 NHL redraft pod. And I just want to point out that we're going to make fun of a bunch of GMs for making bad picks and I can't even get time zone straights. So I'm also a moron. Never forget that. Yeah, I guess a run is probably a great time to think about what, uh, what picks, what were the best picks and uh, which GMs uh, maybe uh, dropped the ball, I guess, and which ones were successful. Uh, um, just a hint, if you uh, maybe a spoiler here, uh, uh, a GM that I think had the best draft maybe isn't one that is considered to be a uh, um, a great GM nowadays. But uh, I'll, leave, I'll sort of leave it at that. Yeah, well, we might we might as well you know address the fart in the room and talk about Peter Chiarelli, who nabs really a huge chunk of the core of uh, of a Stanley Cup winner in this draft and arguably has the best draft for the Boston Bruins. Yeah. I mean, just for those who didn't, uh, I guess you weren't aware of why Peter Chiarelli was the best, uh, had the best draft out of any GM. Um, he drafted three players that turned out um, to be, um, I guess, big name players, those players being Phil Kessel, Milan Lucic and Brad Marchand. So um, obviously, only one of the three players is uh, is still with the Bruins. Um, they did make a pick uh, sort of in between that and the second round. They of a play didn't really uh, didn't really pan out there. That being uh, Yuri 
Alexandrov. I could not tell you anything about him because he did not play a single game in the NHL. Um, but, uh, you know, Shirelli, the funny thing was that Shirelli would only been on the job for something like a month before this, uh, before this draft. So I think that kind of cemented him as, uh, once the Bruins let him go, that sort of cemented him as being a uh, type of GM that other teams were looking out for and why, uh, why Edmonton jumped at the opportunity to hire him, even though his uh, uh, tenure in Edmonton did not end up very well. Yeah, as it turns out, going back to the old retreads of your past glory doesn't always work out for you, uh, Milan Lucic. Um, so Ian, one of the reasons we wanted to do the 2006 redraft pod with you is because you were at this draft in Vancouver. So what do you remember from 2006 in and around that time and at the draft? Um, well, I could tell you from, I guess, 2006 in the, in the hockey world, we can probably talk about that in a bit, but just, uh, personally for myself, um, there was a big contrast between the 2006 draft in Vancouver. And then the next time that the draft was in Vancouver in 2019, uh, back in 2006, you could literally walk up to the door and buy a ticket for the draft and, and get in no problem. Um, I think my, my buddy and I had pre-ordered them and, uh, uh, and, and we were able to, you know, get in and get in our seat. Now the 2019 draft in Vancouver, it was literally impossible to get in. As soon as the tickets went on sale, they were just snapped up right away. I think season ticket holders for the Canucks were given the first crack at the, at the draft, but it was the, uh, the, the Ticketmaster website literally crashed because so many people were on it and it was next to impossible. And for that draft, I just missed out on getting a press pass for that one. So um, unfortunately, I had to watch it on TV. I could not attend that draft, but uh, there was quite a contrast. And I guess it speaks for the, um, the growing interest um, over the last decade plus in following prospects. Um, Dauber Prospects has played a big role in that but there's been so much more interest in that. Back then, people were just kind of like, meh, the draft. They were interested maybe in the you know, first few picks, and, and that was it. But now it's completely changed. Maybe the YouTube as well, where, where people can go on and watch prospects, and they have sort of a favorite prospect of a guy that they're going to hope is, is going to improve in the draft. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's really changed since then. Uh, some other things from 2006, we're coming off of uh, the 05 lockout. This is the first year back from the lockout under the new CBA. Uh, we just came off a thrilling Stanley Cup final. Edmonton loses to Carolina in Game 7. And immediately there's, there's Chris Pronger trade rumors, and he ends up getting dealt to Anaheim on July 3rd. Uh, we just came off of the Ovechkin Crosby rookie seasons and while they were uh, they lived up to all of the hype ultimately their teams land back in the lottery there's a whole bunch of big names getting traded in and around this time Roberto Luongo gets dealt to the Canucks the day before the draft in a package from the Panthers for Todd Bertuzzi, Brian Allen and Alex Ald what was the sense in the city after that deal? Like, was everyone shocked that they were able to get Luongo without having to give up their first rounder? 
Um, I think people here were generally satisfied with the deal. I mean, the Canucks had, um, they had high hopes in the early part of the decade where um, we'd assembled the West Coast Express line with Naslin, Bertuzzi, and Brendan Morrison. And, but however, they lost the previous season due to the lockout. So they came back to this season with high hopes that they were not only going to make the playoffs, um, but go on a, uh, on a Stanley Cup run. Um, however, I think about the last quarter of the season, they've just, the Canucks just stumbled and they just missed out on the playoffs that year. Um, and that, after that, Mark Crawford had gotten fired. Now, Is that the Dan Cloutier can't stop a beach ball season? I think Dan Cloutier was injured that year. Um, and I remember, I believe, yeah, Alex Ald was, um, was their starting goalie. So there was a sense that the goaltending was what, it, what was letting the Canucks down. Um, and after the Steve Moore incident, there was also the sense that Todd Bertuzzi was not the same player, which, which he wasn't. It's just, you know, he lost that. I believe after that season that there was the lockout where he was technically still suspended, but you know, so was everybody. Then he came back the following year. Um, although he had a good, good season, he just simply did not play with that same edge. Just, um, you know, all the aftermath of what happened. And I do believe Bertuzzi was genuinely sorry for what happened. Um, the fact that the Canucks finally had a, a goalie that they could, you know, rely on maybe maybe this is somebody that can take us on a uh, you know on on a playoff run or at least make the playoffs. I kind of got the sense though that the Canucks weren't obviously for missing the playoffs. We're no longer what you you consider a serious Stanley Cup contender, but at least by having a goalie, uh, they could improve in that area. Yeah, you mentioned Bertuzzi. Like he almost immediately turns into a pumpkin after the trade. But you know, one of the reasons that his suspension didn't go on longer was Gary Bettman. He cited kind of the, the mental anguish that both he and his family ultimately like ended up feeling for what, what, what he had done and the, the media outcry uh, about it after the fact. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's difficult to call a suspension um, what the suspension should be. Obviously it was a, it was a long time for him. Um, I, you know, probably long enough for, for Canucks fans anyway. Um, I think got the sense that having that, you know, it, it was a big loss for the Canucks because it has turned out to be the rest of the regular season and the playoffs. You know, the Canucks were attempting a, a Stanley Cup run um, that season. Uh, without Bertuzzi, they were able to, uh, they lost in the first round to a Calgary team that eventually went to game seven of the Stanley Cup final. So there was a sense that maybe the Canucks could have done something. So it did, um, the suspension I think did have a punitive effect on the team. Right, right. And so Chris Pronger moved Roberto Luongo moved. This is also the summer of the big Zidane Chara Wade Redden free agency with the Sens choosing Redden and then Chara goes to Boston becoming maybe the best free agent signing ever and like the Sens they go to the 07 cup final but it's they almost immediately fall apart after that and then Chara has this whole other second act in Boston to the point where you know we could barely even remember his time in Ottawa but like Redden he is traded to the Rangers and riding the bus in Connecticut in the AHL before Chara even hoists the cup in Boston, which is how quickly it fell apart for him. So that that's another crazy thing that happened in 06. And then 
the Kings were also apparently in on Luongo and they had just hired Dean Lombardi to, uh, to be their new GM. And they, they hired Mark Crawford to be their head coach and Lombardi's looking for a goalie. And apparently they were in on Luongo and also Th- that summer, Evgeny Nabokov and Vesa Toskla were, were on the block. And ultimately, uh, Lombardi, he's got a deal lined up offering Alex Brolov, Dustin Brown, and Matthew Guerin for Nabokov to the Sharks. But Doug Wilson, the, the new Sharks GM, he ends up declining because of the whole divisional opponent thing. And it's just, it, it's kind of ironic or, or synchronistic that... Ultimately, Lombardi won't trade Martin Jones to Wilson and the Sharks a decade later. And then they do the Milan-Lucic deal and Boston turns around and flips Jones to San Jose anyway. So just a, a crazy a crazy turn of events that happened that summer as well. Yeah, and these, these trade trees, I guess they go on for years and years and years. I mean, it's funny you mentioned the, uh, you know, the Chara Redden. I was probably still in the uh, camp of, you know, Wade Redden is the better defenseman. And uh, I, I thought at the time, I'll be honest with you, I, th- I thought Zdeno Chara from signing that big contract in Boston, um, I thought it had bust written all over it, and I, I couldn't be more wrong. I mean, you want to, you know, sometimes people go over their worst takes. I mean, that was um, that was one of mine. I was just starting my career as a fantasy hockey writer, and I remember my uh, I remember submitting that as a bust, and my editor going, "Are you sure you want to do this?" And because I don't agree, I think he's going to be great in Boston. I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I think um, I, I think it is." It's, you know, free agents contracts. I I just have an overall skepticism of. Um, whether or not they pan out and uh, um, you know this was one that did this was one that turned out to be a home run for Boston and you know this the one that had really negative ramifications for, for Ottawa for years even though as you mentioned they made the cup final that following year yeah it, it's probably a whole podcast of its own diving into the best free agent signings of all time but yeah most of them don't work out like you said and chara like he he continues to pay dividends for the bruins which is amazing um let's dive into what actually happened at this draft so we mentioned chris pronger he has that one season in edmonton the blues traded him to edmonton for an unthinkable package of eric brewer doug lynch and Jeff Wojtka, they didn't even get a draft pick of the deal. Like crazy, crazy bad trade. And they fall to the mm-hmm. bottom of the standings in uh, in 2006. And then they win the lottery and they get the number one pick. And, and lo and behold, there is this big, smooth skating, right shot, powerful, slick defenseman coming out of the U.S. National Team Development Program, Eric Johnson. He's, he's pretty widely renowned as the number one pick. Just about everyone thinks he's the top guy. And, you know, there are a bunch of other guys in the mix. But ultimately, it's, it's Johnson, number one, and that's who the Blues take. Yeah, and obviously to redraft, you are not going to look at Johnson as your first overall pick here, but at the same time, he's had a very good NHL career. Um, just where he's he's closing in on 800 games. Um, he spent more of his career with the Avalanche than he has with the Blues. Um, he was uh, 
traded. They, they had that big blockbuster trade, the Blues and the Avalanche did. I think it happened um, my time, Pacific Coast time, at literally like 11 or 12 o'clock at night, and Twitter was going mad in the middle of the night because of this big blockbuster trade that the Blues and the Avalanche had. I believe it involved Kevin Shattenkirk and uh, Chris Stewart and I'll have to go back and uh, and look at that trade, but uh, um, but yeah, as you mentioned, he checked a lot of the boxes as far as being this a big defenseman. You know, they were teams were really after size. It's the you know the old axiom: you can't teach size. Um, there's, you know, right shot defenseman. How often do we hear nowadays, you know, right, you know, teams need a right shot defenseman. So, you know, you would just, you know, when, when you look at some of the other players that were passed up for him, I guess they'd just say, we can't, the blue said, Hey, look, we can't pass up, um, somebody who could bring all of these attributes to our team. No, they couldn't. And, you know, teams even to this day can't uh, can't really resist making those those big defenseman picks in and around the, the top of the draft because otherwise you end up trading Taylor Halls to get guys like that. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> and if you go back and look at that trade, I don't think that that blues and avalanche trade, I don't think it's as bad as the as the Taylor Hall for uh, the Taylor Hall trade, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, like if you follow the trade tree all the way down, you eventually end up with Braden Shen landing on the St. Louis Blues, and he's a, a key piece of the 2019 Cup winner. So uh, it, it worked out for the Blues in, in the long run. At number two, the Pittsburgh Penguins finish off an epic run of lottery selections picking number five in 2002, number one in 2003, number two in 2004, number one in 2005, and now in 2006, they pick number two. They get Jordan Stahl. At the time, on the draft cast, Pierre Maguire remarks, can you imagine formulating a game plan against the Pittsburgh Penguins with Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Jordan Stahl, and Colby Armstrong, and wait, what? One of these things is not like the other. yeah, a, a great run of picks for the Pittsburgh Penguins and, and sets up a dynasty for them. Yeah, for sure. Um, although the next pick, if they made the next pick, that dynasty may have even become more powerful. But in the uh, in the day and age of the salary cap era, um, that's it may not have been possible to uh, to keep together Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and Jonathan Taze. But um, Stahl in his, himself has turned out to be a pretty good player. He's closing in on a thousand games, so I would say that that's the that's the mark of a pretty good player. Maybe not a superstar per se, uh, but he's quietly been an effective player for the uh, Carolina Hurricanes as well. Although probably settling in more of a, as a middle six forward as opposed to a guy that you could rely on for the top line uh somebody could take a ton of face-offs for you so i mean there's a lot of positives uh that jordan stall could um it could bring for you but again if you're playing the what if game um you know certainly the uh, the penguins didn't they didn't get an a for this pick right and you know if we want to do the what if uh there's a great jeremy rutherford mark lazarus uh, piece on the athletic talking about the what if the blues had taken Jonathan Taves number one which I mean there was some conversation about it at the time and they even they even talk about uh, TJ Oshie he was the blues's number one pick the year before and he played with Taves uh, in college 
at uh, North Dakota during Taves's draft year, and he he was campaigning for him. Although, how much uh, how much is the team really going to be leaning on their number twenty five overall pick or or whatever Oshie was for them for draft advice? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and ultimately, it's the GMs that are going to make the decisions. I mean, the player might have a bit of influence, and the scouting staff will, um, you know, will have a strong say. But at the end of the day, it's going to be be the GM's pick, and uh, and it looked like Stahl had, uh, you know, he had a lot to a lot to bring to uh, um, as as a player. Anyway, again, drafting for size again, six foot four, uh, two twenty. Now I imagine maybe not that heavy when he was. Uh, drafted, but um, again, you're you're trending towards. If there seemed to be two players that were, you know, somewhat equal, then it always seemed to be that the player who was bigger was the one who would get drafted. Yeah, that size is always going to win out if everything else is deemed equal. Although I, I think that sometimes uh, the mistake is made that you start assuming that everything's equal because a player has size. Um, this is right around when we start hearing the buzz about uh, the four Stahl brothers and how the youngest, Jared, was the best of the bunch. But that was always a misquote. Uh, it was supposed to be indicated that Jordan was was the best of the bunch. And while that, that fails to bear fruit, uh, it, it's still worth noting in retrospect. And I just wanted to note one more what if surrounding this Stahl pick at number two is that it was heavily rumored that the Penguins might trade the pick to Carolina for Jack Johnson, who had been the number three pick uh, the year before. And so the Hurricanes would be able to pair up the, the Stahl brothers, Jordan and Eric. And, you know, it's just funny because, I mean, Johnson, he ends up getting traded to L.A. for Tim Gleason which that's a huge drop off from, from the number one or the number two pick that they were shopping it for. But um, Stahl ends up, he ends up getting traded to Carolina eventually. And the Penguins end up signing Crosby's friend from Shattuck St. Mary's, Jack Johnson. And it's just, it's funny how these things work out. Yeah, it's funny with your comment about the um, Jordan being the best doll or maybe the um, Jared, I guess, was, was the one who didn't make the NHL. I remember a similar comment about the um, about the Subban brothers from P.K. Subban, who said that uh, uh, he believed that Jordan Subban uh, would be the um, the best Subban brother out of the bunch. So there's, there's always that. I mean, um, you never really know, I guess. No doubt. Uh, so at number four, Washington Capitals, they take Nick Backstrom. And there's an interesting clip uh, online of uh, Boston Bruins AGM Jeff Gordon. He makes an offer to George McPhee to move up one spot from number five to number four, offering the number 37 pick. And, you know, they're, they're, they're mulling it over and McPhee asks them, you know, who are you going to take? And Gordon responds, the Swede. And as soon as he says that, like it's game over, McPhee goes back to, he goes back to his draft table and he's talking it over with people, but they're not seriously considering the deal because they are dead set on Backstrom and they make the pick and it's, it's an awesome pick, uh, a, a franchise changing move for them. They get a number one centerman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you got that centerman for Alex Ovechkin um, with the two going together, like, 
peanut butter and jelly for the next over a decade, um, with Baxter being over a, a point a game player. Uh, I heard a story actually of, of uh, and I didn't see this, apparently Ovechkin was at the Vancouver draft uh, signing autographs. I did not manage to, to catch him there. I didn't see it. I think my buddy and I were sitting way up at the top row, so we, uh, um, up in the nosebleed, so we kind of missed that, but I guess that's what they, um, thought so much of Ovi as a franchise player that they brought him to that draft, made that pick, and it was kind of like, okay, they made this pick knowing that they were going to build their team around Ovechkin. Um, who better to get him? That's, you know, who better to pair him up with, with, a, with a center, a playmaker like Nicholas Backstrom? And, and for them, it was the right pick. Yeah, absolutely it was. And there's actually a YouTube clip of Ovechkin after that after that draft or at least after that first round talking about the picks that the capitals made and the poor guy is forced to be wearing one of those original eagle sweaters that he wore his first couple of seasons there and thank god you know thank goodness they moved on from those Definitely. Some of the uh, fashion choices from jerseys from about the mid-90s to um, probably about that time were uh, pretty unfortunate. No doubt. So at number five, uh, we talked about it before, Boston. They take Phil Kessel and this kind of ends his, uh, his, his fall down the draft board. He had some hype coming in after an awesome World Juniors as the American Crosby and uh, yeah, they, they snap up maybe the best goal scorer of the draft. Yeah, I remember that. Um, Kessel was a player I remember specifically. I mean, I can't say that I remember every single pick that was made from that draft um, at the time, but he was one that I was interested to see where he would go because of um, because of his world junior uh, from starring for, for Team USA. Um, and I knew that he was going to fall. There was a talk that before the draft that he was, he was, he was going to fall a bit. Um, but, um, I thought maybe farther than number five, but as it turned out, um, Boston went ahead and, uh, and made the pick, which, uh, turned out to be, turned out to be a, a, a good pick for them. Uh, not so much for what he did for Boston, but, uh, we're talking about like talking about trade trees here, um, in terms of what he brought back to the Bruins uh, when Brian Burke just simply couldn't resist adding him to the Leafs. Yeah, no doubt. That's a, that's a, a trade worth making fun of. And we've, we've probably beaten it to death, but it, it, it's always entertaining to bring it up again. Uh, Ian, let's speed through uh, a few of these next picks. Uh, stop me if you have a story, but otherwise we're going to, we're going to power through number six, sure. Columbus Blue Jackets. They take Derek Broussard, number seven, the New York Islanders, they grab Kyle Poso. Number eight, the Phoenix Coyotes, they take uh, Peter Mueller. And I just want to point out that he scores 22 goals and 54 points as a 19-year-old rookie in 07-08. And then those damn concussions, man. Yeah, you know what? I, uh, I wanted to say something about Peter Mueller because uh, he was the eighth overall pick. He was a player that I thought was going to have a much better NHL career that he did. Um, at the time, the Coyotes made that eighth overall pick. Uh, they didn't have a lot going for them. I think they were in the midst of their um, being, or maybe at the start of the point where they were getting bailed out by the league. Uh, so he was almost looked like a player, seeing them potentially a player that could save them. Um, 
maybe this was a bit of WHL bias on my part, uh, where he played for the nearby Everett Silvertips. Um, but, uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, started off really well, 54 points in his rookie season, and then just tailed off after that. They, they traded him to Colorado for Wojtek Wolski. Um, but then once Mueller went to Colorado, he started having concussion issues. And um, I checked his, uh, his hockey DB page. Uh, he spent the last two seasons in the Czech League where he is a point-per-game player. So he is still playing, even though we haven't heard from him in a while in the NHL. Yeah, I think a couple of years ago, he even tried to make a comeback, but it just uh, it just didn't take. So uh, I always ask the question of who's the player that you still irrationally believe in, uh, even knowing how things panned out for them. And for me, it's Mueller. I don't know if you feel the same way. Um, I do. I picked Mueller and I picked one other player, which I can share later if we're going to get to that later. But that was one player I, I thought was going to have an NHL career, one that I was recommending in fantasy articles, just with the opportunity that he had with, with the Coyotes that didn't, which at least offensively did not have a lot, whole lot going for them at the time. Okay, so at number nine, the Minnesota Wild, they take James Shepard. At number 10, the Florida Panthers take Michael Froelich. At number 11, the LA Kings, they don't end up trading for Nabokov. They don't trade for Roberto Luongo. Instead, they draft the consensus number one goalie in Jonathan Bernier, and he doesn't end up being the solution for them. Jonathan Quick comes along and, uh, and takes over as the, the top starter for a multiple cup winner. He, he is the backup on the 2012 cup winner. But do you think if Bernier is in there as the number one, do, in, instead of Quick, do the LA Kings win a couple of those cups still? Um, I'm going to say no, just because of how exceptional John Jonathan Quick was at the time. Um, I almost get the sense that the Kings tried to rush Bernier, um, where he was, I remember they did a series in London, I think the, not that year, but I think the the following year after that, I'm looking at his NHL page, where they, uh, they threw him in, they kind of made him their, um, their opening opening a goalie and after that he spent the next it looked like they he spent about the next three years in the AHL it looked like he missed a considerable portion well he went back to junior in 2007 and 8 I guess they decided ultimately given the trial period and then sent it back to junior um, so I you know this this might be an example of a player because of the high pick uh, maybe he was rushed a bit whereas quick was somebody that was sort of allowed to to breathe a bit in the uh, in the minor leagues um, you know, but Luke Bernier yeah we had high hopes for him he was in the Memorial Cup the one year I remember for playing for the Lewiston Maniacs which you know, with the combination of uppercase and lowercase letters, I think is one of the, the best names in hockey. Uh, you should have seen the logo. That was fantastic. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, he was another player, and we bring up players that we had higher hopes for. I think even though he's had a career, NHL career, he's still in the NHL, maybe hasn't, um, maybe hasn't been that superstar goalie that we expected him. Uh, and this isn't the only pick that the Kings have in this first round. They actually, during the draft, they end up trading Pavel Dimitra to the Wild for Patrick O'Sullivan and the number 17 pick to select Trevor Lewis. And there is an audible, oh, from the crowd after this trade announcement. Do you remember that? 
Um, yeah, a little bit. I do remember Pavel Dimitra. Um, I remember that that swap. Um, Patrick O'Sullivan, I think at the time, was a fairly well-regarded prospect. Uh, Dimitra was a I would say a consistent player, maybe not a, not a superstar player. Um, I don't think it's a kind of trade that, um, you know, kind of knocked your socks off like the one in New Jersey where the Canucks had traded uh, um, Corey Schneider for the, uh, the pick they used to select Bo Horvat. But there, you know, every time Gary Bettman gets up on the podium and says, you know, I have a trade to announce, everybody's ears perk up. And, oh, oh I wonder what's, uh, what's happening here. So that is, sometimes that's kind of the most unexpected, exciting moment of the draft when Bettman does that. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's pandemonium every time. But I, I got to tell you, go back and watch the, the YouTube clip. It's like there are socks on the ground after this trade is announced because Dimitri, he really was a big deal. He was like a point per game guy for the Kings and he has a couple of good seasons for the wild and you know, somehow he eventually lands on the Canucks. So there's, there's a connection there, but um, yeah, this, this thing was a big deal. And maybe cause it was, I think it was the first trade of that draft that uh, everyone was, was kind of hyped up for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at number 12, uh, a rare quality selection by the Atlanta Thrashers franchise. They take Brian Little. At number 13, the Maple Leafs, they take Yuri Talusti. And he's not getting redrafted. So I just wanted to note that at 19, 20, and 21, he scores over a point per game for the Toronto Marlies. And he's splitting time between the AHL and NHL. But, like, I don't know if he's a guy who just got rushed or what happened with the Leafs, but ultimately they dump him on the Hurricanes for the rights to Philip Paradis. And then Toulouse breaks out with the Hurricanes, uh, his best season, 23 goals, 38 points, and 48 games in that lockout-shortened 2013 season where he paired up with Eric Stahl and a rejuvenated Alex Semen, uh, forming one of the strangest and most shockingly effective lines in the league that year. Yeah, it was a bit of interesting where the Leafs, uh, when he went to Carolina and had that year, those Leafs fans were uh, like, this This was the one that got away. He was rushed a little bit. I mean, there's always that pressure in playing for Toronto that, you know, you have to be, you know, you're, you're going to be that guy and just put the media presence there. Um, but there was one moment that I just remember from that draft when you brought up Yuri Talusti. And I think at the time, just... Um, I hadn't, uh, I, I had, I just moved to Vancouver actually a few months before uh, attending this draft. I lived most of my life in the, in the BC interior. So I, uh, you know, I, I was maybe sort of getting used to, you know, sort of Vancouver and what people's perceptions were of, you know, other places like Toronto. Um, but I was a bit surprised that the, the loudest boo of that draft went not to any Canuck division rivals, not to Edmonton or Calgary or Colorado who played in their their division at the time, but it went to Toronto. As soon as Toronto came up, it was their turn. It was just this big loud boo. And just realized at that time, that's, that's really the, the resentment that, you know, West coast people have towards um, the East coast and Canada in, in Toronto. So um, it was just really, really funny. Um, But at the time I didn't, I don't think I even remembered the pick. I just remembered that super loud boo that just went out to Toronto. 
Yeah, because the draft was being broadcast live on the Toronto Sports Network. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, so at number 14, the hometown Vancouver Canucks, they select Michael Grabner. And what was the sense coming out of, or the sense in Vancouver with Grabner when he was drafted and then coming up through the system? I think that they thought that the pick was a bit of a reach. I think people were surprised at the pick, even though Grabner had played for uh, for Spokane. Um, he was a guy who was from uh, he was from Austria, um, so there was I mean there was the sense I think as well where um, me and in Canadian cities that um, the teams you know should if they're sort of undecided on who to pick, uh, they should pick the the Canadian guy specifically the the homegrown guy. You know maybe it was sort of from year came from years and years of watching Don Cherry on Hockey Night in Canada, but uh, there wasn't a lot of. It, it was sort of like who, who is this guy? Uh, Michael Michael Grabner. Okay, uh, that's that's our pick, um, and he's turned out to have a, a decent NHL career, um, even though most of it was not spent with the Canucks. I mean, if you want to go on a, a trade tree here, there's an interesting one with. Uh, um, with Michael Grabner, where he uh, eventually got moved to the Islanders. I believe that was to... Okay, so Ian, what the hell happened with that trade? Like, he gets he gets thrown in with Steve Bernier and a 2010 first-round pick for Keith Ballard and Phil Oreskovich. Like, what the hell happened? The, the 2011 Stanley Cup finalist, Canucks, probably could have used a guy like Grabner. Does how many like he probably gets a dozen breakaways and scores on one of them, which maybe turns that that uh, that Bruins Cup final for them, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean that following year, yeah, he scored thirty four goals for the Islanders. So there was a sense there was a a missed opportunity. The Canucks were they needed that defenseman that they looked at Ballard and said this is a defenseman that we need. Um, we need that that depth guy, and at this at the time it seemed like um, it was a pretty good deal. As it turned out, Ballard was uh, he did not get along with Elaine Vigneault. Uh, eventually, got benched for some some games. By the time the Cup final rolled around, he hadn't been playing regularly. He'd been a healthy scratch, um, but the Canucks started getting some injuries on defense. There was a. Um, Dan Hamhuis was injured in the, uh, I think, in game one or game two of the final. Uh, Aaron Rome was suspended for his hit on uh, Nathan Horton in game three. Then you had, uh, so they had to bring Ballard in. There was a decision of whether, whether to bring in, uh, it was either him, uh, Ballard, or Chris Tanev. And Tanev actually turned out, who's a rookie at the time, turned out to be the much more uh, defender that you could rely on than Ballard. They just paid this price to get Ballard, and now he wasn't even being used because he couldn't get along with the coach. So this was not a a trade. When you're talking about trade trees, this one did not turn out well for the Canucks. I would say Grabner, he isn't discussed, I don't think, among the worst trades that the Canucks have made. Um, you know, because he has been sort of up and down throughout his career. You look at some of his production, he's had the, he's had the 20 goal seasons, but then the, you know, there's not much in terms of assists. Um, I don't imagine that he's not a player. I think that coaches really rely on. I think, he, you know, you might get 20 goals in a season from him, or you might get a whole bunch of healthy scratches or, you know, where he's, or he's way down in the lineup or just of nothing. So, um, but yeah, certainly that, that career year, they, 
you know, I, I'm sure they could have found a way to get Grabner in their lineup, particularly when you're going through the rigors of the Stanley Cup playoffs and the injuries start popping up. Yeah, you mentioned like teams just do not know what they had in Grabner. Lest we think that the Panthers knew what they were doing, after getting him in this trade, they waive him before the season. He doesn't play a game for them. And then he scores, like you mentioned, 34 goals for the Islanders as a rookie. But then the Islanders are like, oh, 34 Mm -hmm. goals. Five-year, $15 million deal for a guy who he doesn't even score 20 goals for them again. And he's mostly languishing third, fourth line. Ends up on the Leafs, gets 8 million breakaways, and only scores nine goals. So they're like, um, this guy's garbage. Let him walk as a free agent. And then he scores 27 goals in back-to-back seasons for the Rangers, uh, lighting it up on that, uh, that Kevin Hayes-led third line for them. So, like, no one knows what they had in Michael Grabner. Just a curious case and, like, kind of a game-breaker as, as a third liner or a potential one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely had the speed. Um, as you said, a million breakaways. He had the shot or he could he could score. Um, but yeah, I guess when you're looking sort of sort of a complete hockey player, um, he wasn't it. But I remember the what we needed to know about Michael Grabner at the time of the drafted by the Canucks is that this guy is super fast. Um, this is a guy I don't know if they had really really super high hopes for him. Um, I mean, the Canucks drafting at the time, if you're talking around the, after the Steens were drafted, um, you know, if you're talking about great Canucks draft picks, it's a, it's a fair short list. You had Ryan Kessler um, and there really wasn't a whole lot else. So um, I don't think the fans here got a sense that, uh, you know, this, this was going to be a future superstar anyway. And so rounding things out, uh, number 15 pick, it's always a terrible pick. The Tampa Bay Lightning, they take Riku Hellenius. He plays one game as a backup, gets two saves, never lets in a goal, and that, that was the extent of his career. Some other first-rounders, Claude Giroux, Bobby Clark, uh, infamously forgot his name as he was making the pick. We talked about Trevor Lewis, Chris Stewart, Patrick Berglund, Nick Foligno, uh, is an Ottawa Senators pick. Barely remember that. Semyon Varlamov is the second selection made by the Washington Capitals in this first round. Um, Ian, do you want a redraft? Yeah, let's do a redraft. I was just going to I was just going to mention with the Riku Hulanius pick, if you're going to ask me about him, uh, he was literally the Moonlight Graham of that draft. If, you, uh, uh, if you're a Field of Dreams fan anyway, of that player that really just got into that one game, uh, made the two saves, and then was never heard from again. Anytime but yeah, you let's can do make a re- reference to Field of Dreams – on this podcast, you are going to earn bonus points with me. So for that, Ian, I'm giving you the number one pick. Oh, wow. Great. Uh, that, that reference did work. Okay. Uh, so first pick overall here, I am going to go with Jonathan Taves. Lockstep. I, uh, yeah. you know, the St. Louis Blues, we talked about the what if they took Taves number one. Not only does taking him number one get them probably the best player in this draft. I think there's some debate among that, but it blocks their division rival from drafting a guy who tormented them for like a decade. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I remember having that discussion with a, with the a Blues fan about this. Uh, what the what if if they had drafted Jonathan Taze, and um, it was asking me, you know, did they get the sense that um, Taze did not like St. Louis? Was that a part of the reason that the uh, you know that the Blackhawks uh, or that the Blues did not draft him? And Taze, um, since that time, felt extra snubbed and saved sort of his best games against the Blues because he felt like he got snubbed, uh, that he deserved the first overall pick from them. So there's that theory floating around that, you know, this is why the the Blackhawks were, you know, became that dominant team over the next decade, you know, beating, you know, beating their division rivals, the Blues at every opportunity, um, you know, and the Blues had to kind of, you know, kind of sit and watch and wonder what if. Yeah, no question. Um, at number two, the Pittsburgh Penguins, I'm going to take Brad Marchand. And the interesting part of this, he's still at the peak of his powers. Haves is is past his prime, right? He had an epic peak, but you could argue the past four years of Marchand have been as good as peak Taves. It's just peak Taves happened a, a decade ago. And Marchand's only just doing it now. And if he can extend this out for another couple of years, I wonder if we're going back through this process again, you know, once their careers are done, if Marchand doesn't end up being the number one guy. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what your criteria is. If it's points per game um, or in terms of what, what type of player are you right now, uh, then you could make that argument that Marchand should be the first overall pick. It, it took him longer, I think, to really get going to sort of evolve from that super pest that he was in his first few years into a, a dominant offensive force playing on arguably the league's top line. Um, I think that's really, if he were to sub, if he were to overtake Taze here before both their careers are said and done, I think the, you would have to add another Stanley Cup or two here because Taze has the street, three Stanley Cups. Uh, Marchand has just the one. I mean, he came as close as you can get last year to adding a second one. Um, I think should the season return, I think the Bruins have as good a chance as anyone is uh, for winning the Stanley Cup. Um, but it's kind of interesting to see how those revolved. And I had Marchand as my number two pick as well, by the way. Okay, so when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about the whole resume. So like Taves, he, he had a Selkie, he was in the, the Hart top five one time and he's gotten Hart votes four times and he doesn't quite have the counting stats, but we all know his, his two-way impact was crazy good. Like he has a year, the, the lockout shortened 2013 season where the Blackhawks, they go wire to wire as the most dominant team in the league. They have that 24 game point streak and Taves has the second highest game score value added Dom Luschichin's uh, stat there, that could, that all encompassing stat. He's second in the league behind only Crosby in that season. Peak Taves, dominant two-way guy, but Marchand has been there the past four seasons as well. Like he's, he's the only guy on this whole draft that made multiple year-end all-star teams. He was he was first team all-star a couple of years ago and then second team last season. So he top 10 guy, multiple seasons. Uh, he's he's one of three guys on the in this draft with a hundred point season on his resume. He's got a cup win. He's made multiple cup finals appearance. 
you know, the, the famous Phil Jackson saying, these things turn on a trifle. And, you know, they really do. Like, they're, they're a bounce away from maybe winning that, uh, that 2013 Cup final against those same Blackhawks. So he's got playoff heroics. He's, he's, he's done it at every level. And he's at the peak of his powers right now. So I don't have him ahead of Taves because Taves is a little bit more accomplished. But I'm, I'm arguing that he could get there if he keeps this up. I agree. Yeah. And I think the reason just uh, for, for Taze, argument for Taze here, a couple of other things that I'll mention here. One is the, the fact that he has been named one of the NHL's top 100 players already. Um, you know, maybe if they were to redo one again, maybe Marshan will get there one day, but, uh, uh, but Taze is there now. Um, he's got that, he's got that stamp on his NHL.com player, player page. Um, also, I don't remember a number of years ago that TSN did, a, I guess, sort of a, would you call it a mock draft or whatever, um, in terms of who would you, if you were starting a franchise today, which player would you choose? And I think it came down to um, the, the argument came down to either Sidney Crosby or Jonathan Taze. And just the fact that he is in that discussion, um, I think would cement him as, as the top pick here. It's just a player, you know, every team wants to draft a player that they can build around. Even if that player doesn't necessarily um, – put up the most points, but ultimately it's not. Uh, teams aren't win, trying to win Art Ross trophies. They're trying to win Stanley Cups. And, you know, Jonathan Taze has proven all throughout his career that he's a winner. Yeah, I would just point out that Jonathan Taves owns Evgeny Malkin's spot on the NHL's top 100, but um, so be it. <laughs> Wasn't going to get into that separate argument, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you're up at number three for the Chicago Blackhawks. We took Taves away from them, so uh, who's who's next best okay. for you? Well, I kind of saw this is where the picks, I think, get tougher. Um, at least from picks two through five, they were they were tougher for me anyway. Um, I thought I would go and um, I was going to pick Claude Giroux for number number three pick. Um, he's been a player who has, he was picked in at number 22 or later in the first round. I'm in, I'm in lockstep with you once again here, uh, taking Claude Giroux. He had a stretch, uh, particularly right around that, uh, that 2012 playoff series where he threw up like 14 points in six games and knocked off the Penguins in that obscene playoff series. They had like 10-3 games and 8-7 games, and uh, Giroux was the leader of, mm-hmm. of the Flyers that year, so he had that better-than-Crosby thing going on that, that Taves had for a little bit as well, and like ultimately like ridiculous in retrospect. But I, I do remember uh, before that season, I bet on Giroux to win the Art Ross, um, and he finished third with with 93 points uh, behind Peak Malkin and uh, and Peak Stamkos, and he he was number four in the heart. Like he he hit some tremendous highs. I think he's right up there with Marchand and Taves for me. So that kind of made him a clear number three. Yeah, I agree. You look at the uh, the points uh, the points per game there. Uh, just that 
you know, when the, you mentioned the Flyers and Penguins series, um, Giroux not only uh, seemed to be keeping up with Crosby in terms of scoring then, but also he just seemed to be getting under Crosby's skin a bit, uh, just watching, watching that series. Um, but just a player who's, you know, kind of thought he was fading in recent years, but he's been able to bounce back as, as, as a lot of, uh, NHL players have experienced an uptick in offense. Um, certainly a player who is still still producing to this day as well. So, it's, you know, we have a 100-point season as well from 2017-18. So, um, so, yeah, I've gotten a um, great pick for the Flyers as she get number 22. Yeah, and, like, ultimately, you know, for, for me, it was – it was down to Giroux or Nick Backstrom at number four. So Backstrom's the guy I'm going to take at number four and I'll let you weigh in on him. But for me, yeah. the reason I had Giroux uh, higher than Backstrom is ultimately just higher highs. Backstrom also has a hundred yeah. point season, but that's like that peak Ovechkin scoring obscene amount of goals season and Giroux He's he's a he's a hard top five guy three different times like he has a bunch of different peaks and then some low lows whereas Backstrom's basically he's like twenty goals fifty five assists year in year out but you take a playmaker like Giroux and does he have those low lows if he's on a team with with a guy like Ovechkin ultimately Giroux had to do it as the number one guy on his team and Backstrom never did and that's why I I, I went mm-hmm. to Giroux. Yeah, I agree. I've had uh, my first four picks have been the same as yours. I've had, um, you're going to wonder with Backstrom, his, Giroux seemed to be more of a player that could uh, dominate the game by himself. Um, Backstrom, you look at his his totals, you kind of wonder if he didn't find a player alongside Alex Ovechkin, what would his numbers be? Uh, they would, they would probably be lower as Giroux is probably more, you could, you could probably stick him on any team and um, he would produce close to what he did. I mean, that's, I mean, I give credit to Backstrom. He's been a consistent, you know, very high assist totals, 50 plus assists for um, quite a number of seasons. Uh, so there's, you know, nearly a point a game through, player throughout his career um heck maybe these players from two to five um we're discussing potential hall of famers here i remember having this debate with a uh a capitals fan a friend of mine you know who was certain that backstrom should be in the hall of fame yeah i think backstrom's gonna get there he's not far off from hitting a thousand games a thousand points and he's almost certainly gonna get there as the playmaking hub of probably the best power play of the the past two decades and while he did have the perk of being the playmaker to the greatest goal scorer ever he still was great in his own right and so you know he never makes it as a top two guy at his position or even into the the top five of the heart which other guys on this list did. So that's why he's a number four. But for me, like his, his legacy is still cemented. He's been on great teams for a really long time and the number one center on, on a cup winner. So it's, it's, you know, it's hard to knock him off that hall of fame track. Um, number five, Boston Bruins. Who are you taking Ian? Um, I am going to go with the pick that the Bruins made, which is Phil Kessel. Uh, let you weigh in on that, but just mentioned that those picks two through five were sort of my next tier after Taze in terms of uh, 
we're sort of had more of a difficult time trying to rank them. Yeah, there's a drop off after number five, which is probably why we have the exact same picks all, all the way through this. I, I had Kessel going to Boston as well. And the number of times we kind of, we took the guys with the pick that they actually went at, I think really speaks to, I guess the quality of the drafting that took place and the, and the quality, like the high end quality of the top of this draft that we're not redoing so many picks at, at this point. And I, I noted before Kessel top goal scorer in this draft class. I don't think he's like, I think he's a step below uh, Backstrom, but he, he was a great player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe not the player that you would, uh, you know, say, necessarily say, I want to build my team around. This is a, a guy who's now on his fourth NHL team. Um, the, you know, the Leafs wanted to, to get, kind of get rid of him. Um, you can say all you want about his, uh, you know, how much, you know, does he really have a desire for the game? You've heard all, all of those stories. Um, but the fact is the guy could score goals. I mean, you know, you don't, you know, I mean, these players that can score 40 goals a season don't grow on trees. So um, this is this is a player who would, you know, as long as you were comfortable, you know, just put him in the lineup, get him on the right line, um, he, he would score goals for you. He wouldn't, you know, he's not known for his defense. Uh, his hits totals are always very, very low, but he, you know, but in terms of, you know, what he could provide, there, uh, there were, few of his kind. I think that's sort of cements him here at number five. Yeah, you mentioned kind of the stink that was around him for a while. We saw him as a number one guy on a team and you couldn't win in that situation. But as soon as he goes to Pittsburgh and he's the third banana, they win back-to-back cups and he had a legitimate claim to the to the con Smythe in both of those years. So Interestingly, he's a, a great goal scorer. Never scored 40 goals in a season one. <laughs> I was thinking 40. I was thinking 30 for sure. He had 30s. I thought he had a 40 in there, but I was just looking at his hockey DB. And yes, I stand corrected. And then um, a surprising Ironman guy for a guy. He's, he's known as not being a hard worker, but hasn't missed a game since 2010. And he's the reason behind my, maybe some NHLers are working too hard in the gym theory because legendarily he apparently he's amazing in the gym when he actually wants to go in there like he he can Mm. squat what the top guys are doing he just he just never does it Mm. yeah I mean it was a guy again avoiding the hitting was probably you know a key to extending his NHL career not being that that physical player because it's going to lend itself to you know to more injuries you know Castle as a as a kid was probably the you know, if, if he played, you know, if he played Little League Baseball was probably the kid that didn't, you know, kept his uniform nice and clean, even though there were other kids that were getting their dirty by uh, by sliding and diving for for fly balls and all of that. So that's sort of what I picture with Kessel is it's just sort of that um, ability to sort of keep himself in, in, maybe it's kind of a self-preservation kind of thing, I guess is what I want to say. Yeah, and a brilliant strategy. It's led to a long and fruitful career. Still going, by the way, as much as, you know, he's had a forgettable season in Arizona. Uh, number six, the Columbus Blue Jackets. And, we, you know, we, we've been teasing it a bunch. Just like in the actual NHL draft, there was a cliff after the number five pick. 
there's a cliff here as, as well. Um, they took Derek Broussard. I'm not going to take Derek Broussard. I'm going to take Jordan Stahl. He makes the leap as an 18-year-old scoring 29 goals. And surprisingly, that ended up being a career high. Yeah, I, don't, I agree with you on the stall pick. I had him as number six as well, just for his longevity. Um, again, not in the same offensive class as the players above him. Uh, he's had a decent career, something I should mention from earlier when I said that he wasn't a you know, a pick that you could grade an A for the Penguins. Um, I would put him as a solid B where he was a, you know, he was that third line player for the, uh, for the Penguins. Uh, when he moved to Carolina, he more of a, more of a second line option because we were talking about a team that, you know, wasn't, wasn't nearly as deep at the center position as, as the Penguins were, um, but carved himself a, a solid NHL career is still going um, as many of these players are from back in 2006. Yeah, well, you know, you've kind of touched on something that has stood out for me about this draft. And it, I actually kind of had the reverse takeaway. Like, as we go further, we're going to start to see guys who are no longer either even close to the peak of their powers or have washed out of the league completely. And these players are only 31, 32 years old. And so while the best guys were able to string it together and they're still going, so many guys from this draft class just did not make it out of their 20s. Yeah, that's true. And I'll, just something I'll mention too is that if you go to Dauber Prospects, there was a, uh, a really interesting article from uh, Yoki Nevalainen. I hope, Yoki, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Um, but in the, he mentioned in, he was looking at big picture um, in terms of NHL players for draft class. And it's, uh, he showed in his study that 2006 was actually the worst of the decade in terms of NHL players per draft class, which kind of surprised me initially at first because my, my initial take from looking at this draft is this was a, a solid draft. Uh, when we compare it to the 1999 draft when the Sedins were picked, which was just you know, almost empty in terms of uh, you know, in terms of its ability to produce NHL players beyond the Sedins, um, this one seemed okay. But as you go on further down this draft, um, it doesn't it doesn't seem to have the later round picks maybe that uh, that turned out to be solid NHL players that uh, uh, some of these other drafts in the uh, in that decade did. Yeah, just a, a strange lack of depth to this draft class. Uh, last thing on Jordan Stahl, I just want to comment that he made the leap as an 18-year-old. Not too many guys from this draft class did. And he contributes to a back-to-back -back cup finalist playing regular minutes as a teenager. So while he doesn't hit the highs as the guys above him on this list, he, he made an impact right away and would, would be an important piece for anyone if they drafted him. So Columbus, well done. Uh, you're up at number seven for the New York Islanders. They took Kyle Ocposo. Um, I'm interested to see if you rehash that pick. Um, I'm going to say not quite. Ocposo doesn't fall too far down, but I think if the Islanders got a chance to re uh, to pick this one again, um, I would say speaking of players that have seen better days, but uh, when we're talking early on, his career is very effective. Milan Lucic. Okay, and once again, we are in lockstep. I swear we didn't send each other the lists and make the same list. It just uh, it, it seems to have worked out that way. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you could easily go with Ocposo, but I, I definitely think Lucic, just, just a higher ceiling pick. Um, I've talked about it a lot on this podcast, but when he and Horton teamed up with David Krejci, they were an absolute menace for the Bruins. I, I'm sure you know that well, Ian. Mm-hmm. Are, are you just haunted by, by memories of Lucic? Is that why you're picking him here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, people here in, in Vancouver kind of have a... Uh, um, I would say we're kind of on the fence about Lucic. On one hand, there is that, you know, you know, he, he was a key player in the Blue Bruins 2011 Stanley Cup. Um, on the other hand, he did play his junior career in Vancouver for the Giants. Um, I think he was sort of a work in progress at the time um, where he was a big body. Um, people saw him as having um, a lot of potential, although maybe he hadn't kind of put it all together yet he'd had this you know sort of the big body where he was still trying to grow into it and learn how to use his size um maybe a similar type of comparison for junior maybe a few years earlier player we talked about earlier is Adano Chara where he didn't or if you saw him in junior with the uh, Prince George Cougars didn't get the impression maybe that he was going to be an NHL star one day as much as he was a novelty for being six foot nine so um so yeah I, I think you know, you look at peak Lucic, um, you know, obviously that that's well past that all happened before he signed that big contract with Edmonton. But, uh, you know, he was a guy who was, you know, a lot of hits, he could score goals. Um, he was a player, obviously, at the time that the Bruins didn't seem to want to part with, but um, that they had to because, um, because of salary cap issues. And then after that, it just seemed like his career just, um, you know, I don't know if he's become worn down or whether the, you know, the, I guess the, the rule changes, uh, the style of play being more driven by, um, by analytics has now sort of made him, has kind of hurt his value as a player, made him become um, sort of like a, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of a dinosaur from a previous era. Yeah. I mean, the knock on him, going into this draft was about his skating. He could not skate worth a damn. And he solved it enough to carve out a seven to eight year run as one of the premier power forwards in the game. And once he started to wear down a bit and maybe wasn't quite a, as the same way uh, motivated and certainly the game has gotten way faster. He like, he, yeah, he, he turned into a dinosaur an albatross, a punchline, whatever you want to call it. He's there now, and it kind of sucks because this guy was the don't-poke-the-bear guy of, of his era. Yeah, definitely. I agree. There was a lot to like about Lucic, and those whose memory only goes back a few years um, might not remember how effective Lucic was as a – how dominant a player he was out on the ice in his peak. Okay, so at number eight, the Phoenix Coyotes, as much as we both love Peter Mueller, I'm not taking him here. I feel like this is the right spot for Eric Johnson, who was the number one pick in this draft. Like we referenced, a very solid player for a long time and still going for the Avs. Yeah, I let Johnson fall a little bit further on mine. I guess this is the first time where you and I will uh, um, divert, but uh, there is a good argument for Johnson here, just with the the number of games and what he's been able to bring, and um, you know, just because a player 
um, may not be the best player picked on the draft um, at first overall. Doesn't mean that that player cannot have, uh, still have an effective NHL career, which I think Johnson has had. Maybe hasn't produced the, uh, the offensive numbers. He's average less than point per game. Maybe that sort of uh, clouded into my thinking that maybe he shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be picked as high as he has. Um, I don't think you can call him a draft day bust just for that reason, because he's had the long NHL career. Um, a draft day bust is somebody I think more like a, um, it's going to be somewhere more like a Nail Yakupov, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I could, I could definitely see why you would make that pick there. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I feel for the Coyotes because they were just as bad as the Kings and the Blackhawks through this stretch of the early aughts. They just never bottomed out enough to get a really high pick. Or when they did, they end up with Kyle Turris instead of, uh, you know, a franchise changer. And so they just, I don't know, they just keep puttering along with these Pierre Mueller, Mikel Bodker. Like even they, they hit a home run with Oliver ekman Larson, and it still wasn't enough to be hugely changing for them. And so Eric Johnson fits just perfectly into that, you know, not, not quite a star, but uh, a number two, number three defenseman that every single team in the league would be happy to have. And he he done it for a very long time. And and if we want to talk what ifs, he scored 33 points in like 69 games as an NHL rookie. And then the next season in camp, he hops off a golf cart and tears his ACL and loses his entire sophomore season. And what happens if he doesn't lose that 20-year-old year? Does he maybe grow even more as a player? That's true, and it's just another one of those one if, what ifs. Maybe if that if that injury hadn't happened, that was a that was a fluke injury, and it cost him that um, that entire season or near that entire season. Um, could we, you know, could that have affected his development? That that, you know, could could he be in a little bit more than um, than what he's turned out to be? Yeah, and and my answer is probably not, but uh, worth thinking about. So at number nine, the Minnesota Wild. I know you're not taking James Shepard. <laughs> no, no, he didn't. Uh, he didn't make my uh, list of honorable mentions here. Um, I'm going to go with uh, the first goalie of the draft here, which is uh, Semyon Varlamov, uh, or Var- Varlamov. I always get the make sure you get the correct correct pronunciation here. Um, in terms of um, in terms of being a starting goalie, I think that maybe fits the wild in terms of their commitment to defense and goaltending. Um, he's had a pretty good career. He's never been a superstar goalie, I don't think. Uh, he had some pretty good years with Washington. Maybe got lit up a little bit with Colorado. Um, but he's had an okay season with the Islanders last year. Yeah, I mean, he's easily the best goaltender in this draft. I had him one spot later than this, so I don't have a ton to quibble with. Um, can we talk about the Capitals using back-to-back picks? They took Backstrom at four, and then they took Varlamov at 25, and then they took Michael Neuwirth at 34, and which just screams of the, well, we drafted a skater really high, so now we can justify taking a goalie uh, with our other first strategy. And it, they just like took it to a whole nother level and attacked this, uh, this organizational weakness that they had and landed two goalies that played well for them. And we've seen this similar type of strategy from the Islanders doing it with 
Ilya Sorokin and Linus Soderstrom. And then uh, the Blue Jackets did it as well with Oscar Dansk and Jonas Corposalo. And it seems like a pretty good way to fill an organizational need if you pick correctly. Yeah, it's a risky one just because of the development of goalies. Um, you know, picking teams generally don't pick a goalie as a high first round pick or first round pick uh, in itself just because of the, the risk involved because goalies just need more development time than players do. Um, and it just seems to really, you know, a lot of the star goalies nowadays aren't necessarily high picks. They're just players that have goalies that would just develop really well. But if you're looking for an honorable mention um, in terms of which GM had the best draft, maybe that's uh, the Washington Capitals with George McPhee with, as you mentioned, the Backstrom pick, Varlamov, Neuwirth. And then later on, they went on to pick Matthew Perot as well at uh, 177. So um, it looks looked like a pretty good draft for the Capitals. Yeah, George McPhee crushed this draft, which, I mean, once again, we have to reference the fact that he refused to trade down one spot because he loved his guy, Nick Backstrom, and it was the absolute right call. Ian, does Varlamov help push the Wild over the top in any of their three straight losses to the 2013, 2014, 2015 Chicago Blackhawks? I'm going to say no, just because that Blackhawks team was uh, was powerful. The Wild were already strong defensively. Um, I think a goalie like Varlamov, unless you were talking about a, a goalie that could potentially steal a series, um, I don't see I don't see the Wild getting past the Blackhawks in uh, in any of those series, especially with uh, with that team at their peak. So uh, the Minnesota Wild fans' sense of existential crisis was well earned at that point. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so at number 10, uh, picking for the Florida Panthers, I'm going to take Kyle Ocposo, who he, he probably fits in pretty well with their so-so their um, middle six type forward group of the, uh, of the 2010s that they assembled there. Yeah, that's Okposo was who I had next on my list. Um, turned out to be a pretty good goal scorer um, in his in his prime. He was almost at 200 goals uh, through his career. Um, he's kind of had the misfortune of maybe not playing. Could have played for some better teams, uh, starting with drafted by the Islanders. You all know that the Islanders haven't haven't been great um, in the past two decades or longer. Um, was went to the Sabers, signed that free agent contract with uh, to go to Buffalo, and of course, you know Buffalo has you know has has you know has been terrible for the past decade or so. So maybe maybe he gets picked higher. Maybe he gets ranked higher just simply if he played for some better teams. The scouting report on him coming into this draft was smart, gritty, play center, but he's ultimately going to play on the wing. And that's exactly what he turned into. Like the, the scouts pegged this guy totally correctly, just a perfectly fine first to second line winger. And, you know, he, he plays on maybe the best Islanders team of the past Two decades in 2016, they make uh, they make the second round that year, and then yeah, he he signs that summer of 16 contract that hasn't aged very well. But I mean, mo most of his issues in Buffalo have just been with injuries. So yeah, a, a really good player for a long time, but probably not a game changer. Uh, at number 11, 
for the Los Angeles Kings. They took a goalie who they didn't end up needing. Who are you going to take for the median? I am going to pick, it uh, won't be a goalie. Uh, it's going to be Nick Felino. Oh my um, goodness, Ian, you, you did it again. You picked the guy off my list. This is <laughs> insane. Um, you did the same. I did the same with Opozo too. I know Opozo was the next on my list too. So I think so far, the only pick where we might be different is with Eric Johnson. Yeah, like Johnson and Varlamov, we had like flipped or something like that. Um, Foligno fits those Kings teams like a glove. He's big, he's strong, defensively stout, excellent leader. Uh, hopefully he helps blunt the, the dramatic fall that they had after their second cup win. But even if he doesn't, he would have fit in just fine on those Kings teams. Yeah, you had that big winger. Um, well, not, he's only six feet tall, but weighs over 200 pounds. Um, but sort of fits that that type of mold where they uh you know they play play with size play a really heavy game um maybe a bit sort of resembles i think um a player in the king's roster now in in terms of style of play and maybe overall points in in dustin brown um the funny thing is is that maybe maybe something that's pushed felino up here is that one outlier 73 point season that he had with columbus back in 2014-15 um one that no one including myself saw i think i uh in my keeper league i think i let felino go as a free agent right the season before i think that um, I would say the season before, maybe the season before that, and watch somebody else uh, sort of reap the rewards of that um, of that season. So, um, you know, but aside from that, probably has that a lot of those intangibles. He has the bloodlines, of course, with his uh, his dad, Mike Felino, having played in the NHL. You know, he got that size, captain material. So. Um, you know, if you're not just looking at pure statistics, he's um, probably the type of guy that uh, a lot of teams would love, I'd love to have. Yeah, timing, as they say, is everything. So um, at number 12, the Atlanta Thrashers, they took Brian Little. He is that franchise's games played leader by over 100 games. And he's been a, a perfectly good number two centerman for them for over a decade it, it was a great pick at the time why change it i'm taking brian little yeah that works for me um i had one only one other player had a little here but uh um you know at this point we're really you know we, we 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 could be splitting hairs i guess um you know little's been you know aside from this this season um when healthy he's been a solid 40 plus point score uh throughout his career and even some of those have been in seasons where he didn't play a full 82 games um in terms of staying with one franchise yeah absolutely that's uh, something that we might forget with little because he was drafted by the thrashers went with the team to Winnipeg and that's where he's been ever since so you know he's he's been a guy that obviously would stay in an organization so I might be sort of swayed on uh, on that pick compared to the uh, the guy that I had picked right that I had right above Little um, who's been on a number of NHL teams but uh, um, but no I think that's a that's a solid pick. Well Ian why don't you make the case or who you would have taken at number 12 with your pick at number 13 All right. the Toronto Maple Leafs. 
Okay, so my pick I had was Derek Broussard. Um, this is, I think that Broussard, Broussard was picked at sixth overall here. Um, obviously compared to some of the other players, maybe he didn't, his career didn't quite pan out the way he did, but I think that maybe his, his upside, uh, maybe at least for a few years, was a bit higher than Little's. Uh, he has the one 60-point season. He has a um, just looking at as he has another one where he's been above 50 points. It's kind of tailed off. He's kind of bounced around a little bit. Uh, this season, he was at 32 points in 66 games for the Islanders, uh, maybe a team that um, could give him that opportunity. He's not going to be, you know, if, if he's not in a top six role, he's really not going to contribute much um, to a team. Um, unfortunately, he might just be remembered as the guy who uh, – traded by the Rangers to the Senators for Mika Zibanejad and what is turning into being one of the more one-sided deals out there. Yeah, Broussard didn't make my list, and maybe it's because he's turned into a meme. Every single team that trades for Broussard ends up regretting it, which probably speaks more to what they've been giving up for him. But uh, ultimately, a, a fine player, but he didn't pan out to kind of what teams were hoping for. And that, that makes him a great pick for the Leafs. Um, at number 14 <laughs> for the Vancouver Canucks, I am going to take Jeff Petrie. Okay. Yep, I uh, I can get behind that pick. He wasn't the next pick I had. He was actually the pick after. Um, I think he was a player that kind of took a little while to develop. You would have seen him firsthand with the Oilers and looked like he was turning into a decent player with the Oilers. And then they, uh, they traded him to Montreal. And I think that's a trade that they really regret given their issues on defense. Um, maybe he didn't see Petrie develop into that type of offensive player that he has with Montreal. Uh, we're talking about three consecutive 40 point seasons. So, uh, so there is a, in terms of how, how it's evolved. I think, uh, I think Petrie is a, is a solid pick here. Yeah. I mean, Petrie, like you said, it takes him a while to develop. So he would have just been a rookie kind of splitting time between the AHL and NHL by the time that the Canucks went on that, that 2010, 11, uh, Stanley cup run. So he probably wouldn't have helped them there. Uh, if they had made, if they had taken him with this pick, but maybe with the injuries, he, he could have come in and contributed, but, uh, like a, a rare good pick by the Oilers in this in this era, they traded their first rounder in this draft for Dwayne Rollison, and like no regrets there. He led them to the Stanley Cup Finals, and then they you know they nailed the pick at number forty five with Petrie. Turns into a, a superb number two, number three right shot puck mover. Kind kind of similar story to Eric Johnson, but without quite the same amount of nasty, but. You referenced it. They shipped him to Montreal at the 2015 deadline because they, they decided they didn't want to pay him, but Montreal was willing to. They gave him a six-year, $33 million extension. That seemed ridiculous at the time, but has proved to be an absolute bargain. And the Oilers immediately responded to that by trading Taylor Hall for Adam Larson. The trade was one for one to try to fill that top pair right shot slot. And it turns out they could have just done it with Petrie instead. Yeah, absolutely. Agree. Turned out to be a pretty good draft. And when you mention, uh, as I say, first round 
Uh, Oilers giving up their first round pick for Dwayne Rolis. And, you, you know, usually that would sound like, um, okay, that's, that's not a great deal for Dwayne Rolison, who I think was about 39 years old at the time. But, uh, um, but remember that the Oilers went on that Stanley Cup run and Dwayne Rolison was, was their goalie. Now, he, he got injured, I think, during that yeah, game uh, one run, didn't he? the Cup final, he got hurt and yeah. they lost because of it. So hmm. asterisks, asterisks, hurricanes, asterisks. <laughs> yeah, what was it? You UC Markinen was the goalie. You see Markinen and Ty Conklin, if I remember correctly. Oh yeah, that was the remainder of the three-headed monster. Yeah, yeah. After, after Rolleston was out, yeah, I just remember that being there, and just thinking that the Oilers' chances um, weren't going to be very good after that, especially with a Canes team that had really loaded up for the Cup final that year. Yeah, I mean, if we, if we really want to get into how the Oilers kind of fucked themselves over, um, there's a whole trade tree of that Rolison pick that they traded ends up getting traded for Pavel Dimitra. So the Kings take Trevor Lewis, but they also get Patrick O'Sullivan, who they end up doing a three-way deal with Edmonton and Carolina. And Edmonton ends up with Patrick O'Sullivan, who, for all his talents, just never hacked it as an NHLer and the Kings get Justin Williams, Mr. Game 7, they win two cups. The Hurricanes get Eric Cole back and it all starts with the Oilers having like 5 years earlier traded Doug Waite to the St. Louis Blues who ends up getting traded to the Hurricanes at the 06 deadline. So Doug Waite's on the Carolina Hurricanes and helps them beat the Oilers in the Cup final and so it's all just a plot against the Oilers. It's just the circle of life, I guess, in hockey. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so at number 15, the Tampa Bay Lightning, they took uh, Moonlight Graham. And uh, who are you going to take for them instead? Mr. Irrelevant, yeah. Um, actually, I am going to go with um, a player that really – uh, it was actually a goalie um, whose career started with a bang and then just – kind of fizzled out after that had some awful years and then some okay years and then um has just left the league uh that being steve mason um, you did it again because, Ian. you yeah. did it again that's the guy i had at this pick hey if tampa bay oh, wanted a goalie i they, was for they couldn't have done better than steve mason in this spot I was prepared to have to try to sell you on this pick to say, okay, I had, I was almost ready for you to say, oh, I had Mason down at number 32 or something like that here. But, uh, but I just looking at the accomplishments of earlier in his career, um, the almost thought he won a Vezina trophy, but um, in fact, that year, 2009, he won the Calder trophy and made the NHL second all-star team. So um, obviously it was all downhill from him after that, even though he, he was a starting goalie in the NHL for, for quite some time. Yeah, he was really good for like three, four years in Philly. And that's a team that could not figure goalies out for the life of them. And so that for me, really, like it really came off as, as impressive. So Steve Mason, he, he turns into a solid starter, you know, like you said, ups and downs, but ultimately a good player and contributed way more than uh, Riku Hellenius Moonlight Graham did. So do you have any honorable mentions, Ian? I have none. 
Okay, I have a few honorable mentions here. One we we discussed already, a couple of we discussed already here. One is Michael Grabner. Another one is Jonathan Bernier. They make my honorable mention just because they are uh, they are still playing. Uh, some other ones here, uh, Michael Froelich, who was picked number 10 in that draft. Um, Artem Anisimov and James Reimer, who is uh, obviously still still playing as well. And a player who recently left the league, uh, interesting documentary on him on Sportsnet with his situation, Patrick Berglund. So those were my honorable mentions. Yeah, th those were some good names. And, and, you know, they had they had careers for a long time. But that kind of gets back to uh, what I was saying about how many guys, 31, 32, and now they've washed out of the league. Uh, any other big takeaways for you from this draft? Um, what I was going to mention here in terms of, we want to talk about players who expected more from, there was one other player that I had, um, and it was actually a junior teammate of Peter Mueller's. Maybe this was the, um, maybe this was the fact that a bit of a WHL bias, that that's the, the junior league that I, um, am exposed to the most. Uh, that was a goalie by the name of Leland Irving, um, who was drafted later in the first round by the Calgary Flames, um, who had some, uh, uh, some some solid years. Um, I wanted to say he played on Canada's World Junior Team, but I, I don't think I'm I'm correct on that because um, I didn't see anything on it on his player profile. But um, but he looked like maybe this was the risk again of drafting a, a goalie really high. There's too many unknowns um, about him. He only played 13 NHL games. Um, last um, last he played was in Austria. It looks like with his hockey DB page, he's um, he's retired now. But um, I certainly had the expectation that Leland Irving would have had uh, more of an NHL career than 13 games, which is uh, you know you would probably expect more from a goalie drafted, even if they're drafted in the first round. Yeah, goalie picks in the first round it's it's so up and down actually i just had uh max from tbe hockey and, and the prospect network on my podcast talking about why goaltenders fail so often and you know even the ones drafted in the first round one of the things he highlighted is the chl really isn't a, a very good developmental model for uh goaltenders and so often you know teams kind of fall in love with these guys out of the chl and they do it based on tools rather than just looking at the numbers that they put up. And if you're not putting up like great numbers relative to your league, then like you're not making saves and you're, you're probably just not that good of a goalie. So I wonder if that's not what happened here with Irving. Yeah, perhaps, because he had some very good years at the Everett Silvertips. We're talking about in the WHL sub uh, 2.00 goals against averages, which, you know, keep in mind that the WHL is a, a higher scoring league. Usually a lot of leagues are compared to the NHL just because they don't have the defensive systems built in that uh, that NHL teams do. They don't have the level of coaching, perhaps in there so um one red flag perhaps is that his uh his goals against average went up and his save percentage went down uh during his final season in uh, in junior um just the long time i think just goal goaltending seems to be you know in recent years we've kind of seen the increase of goalie coaches uh specialized goalie coaches uh specific to a, to a team uh, that work on 
developing goalies. You look at, uh, you know, here in Vancouver, Jacob Markstrom and the time that it's really taken him from being um, a player that was left unclaimed when he was put on waivers about five years ago to, you know, a potential you know, you can argue with this with me, a, a potential Hart Trophy candidate for the way he's bailed out the Canucks in uh, in some games this year. Um, a lot of that has to do with his credit to his goalie coaches, Ian Clark, and uh, before that, Dan Cloutier, Um in terms of the amount of time that, you know, development that it go, goes into a goalie. So I think, you know, when you're picking, you know, in any draft, I mean, you're, you're picking 18-year-old kids, you know, and they're really – you know, with scores, you can kind of see that they, they have the ability to even there, there's, there's a risk. Um, you don't know how these, how these players are necessarily going to turn out. Um, you know, there's still, still a lot of unknowns. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to project. I imagine with, with goaltenders even more so. Yeah. Um, the, the other big takeaway for me was, how few defensemen there were in this draft. Like we had Johnson, uh, he was the consensus number one going into this draft. But I wonder if it's just because there were like no other good defensemen. Like we took Petrie in our redraft, but other than that, those are the only two guys we redrafted. If you're just looking at point shares, the uh, the hockey reference stat, number three and number four in this draft class were Andrew McDonald and Jamie McBain. That, that's insane. Yeah, I noticed that. I'm looking at the same hockey DB page as you, and uh, and yeah, that's um, that was quite something that you look at. Uh, I remember Andrew McDonald, and you could almost make a, an honorable mention for him um, as you know, 160th overall. Even though uh, the Islanders, you know, were was it the Islanders or Flyers who were desperately trying to get rid of his contract to bury him in kind of Wade reddened him in the minor leagues. It was Flyers, that's right. They they basically Wade reddened him to the minor leagues to try to bury his contract. So, you know, um there wasn't a yeah, you're right. There weren't that's something I noticed as well too. And when I was looking through these picks, there weren't a whole lot of defensemen. And maybe there is a risk uh to drafting defensemen, particularly early on, because of the uh and, and the, the, the the position of defense has changed too. If you, you look at that, um, where, you know, somebody like say a Quinn Hughes, um, you know, sort of mobile type of defenseman would not have gotten, you know, he would not have gone seventh overall as much as he fell in his draft year. He would not have fallen in, um, you know, he, he would have fallen past seventh overall in, in this one, even though with the numbers that, that he put up. The, the position has changed where if you drafted sort of that, teams were after sort of that that big, strong, heavy defenseman, maybe a bit slow-footed, um, maybe that hasn't evolved, kind of hasn't aged well over time. Um, but now it's kind of changed where you need that mobile puck moving defenseman. So I think that's maybe because of the position has changed. Maybe that's why we're not seeing as many defensemen, but, but that is a, an issue particular to this draft. And it may explain, um, when I mentioned Yoki's, uh, study about the two, 2006 draft, maybe, um, being the worst of that decade, um, the lack of defensemen could be one symptom of that. Yeah, there were eight defensemen drafted in the first round after Johnston or Johnson, and they combined for less than 200 games played combined with like half of them not even playing a single NHL mm. game. 
It's oh, just, wow. just crazy. But, you know, you talk about the change in defensive style and stuff like that. But two years later, 2008 is the best defenseman class in the draft maybe ever. So did everything really change that much in two years or is it just a random thing that happened in 06? I think just some years must be better than others. I mean, we see some are better than others. It's not, it's, it's not going to be even. Um, players don't all come into the league at the same time. So, yeah, it, it just for whatever reason, maybe just didn't turn out to be as uh, it, it produced as many defensemen as, uh, as other years did. Uh, Ian, one last one before you go. Do you have any best hockey names to shout out? In terms of best hockey names, in terms of uh, this draft class, this draft class, um, yeah, I think that was uh, the ones that I mentioned there earlier. There, um, if you're looking at maybe other picks that I hadn't mentioned in uh, in terms of honorable mentions here, uh, uh, somebody like a like a Chris Stewart as uh, beyond that list. Uh, mentioned him as being part of that Eric Johnson trade. He was, interestingly, he was drafted in that same year. Uh, Nikolai Kuhleman, uh, some Leafs fans might remember um, as well. I was thinking more Cal Clutterbuck. Hilarious Ah, name. yes. And then yes. <laughs> Corbinian Holzer. Amazing hockey name. Mm. Leo um, Komarov, too. Don't forget Leo Komarov. <laughs> yes. One of six yeah. guys the Leafs drafted that mm. played over 200 games yeah um so ian i gotta let you go here it was great having you on the pod once again thank you so much for coming on do you have anything to plug uh yeah just uh yeah we're dauber hockey uh, where i am the um content editor managing editor I uh, your old position um, we're still going 365 days a year here uh, pandemic uh, doesn't stop us from posting daily ramblings uh, plus most of our usual articles so if you're looking to get your fantasy hockey fix uh, do check us out uh, we do have the um, the keeping Carlson podcast going there a few days a week as well um, where uh, they're doing some interviews with some beat writers uh, from the various teams. So uh, we're posting our, uh, our rankings as well. Uh, the forum, there's also the prospects guide, which is coming out on the 12th as well. So uh, there's probably more stuff that Dauber would want me to remember here, but uh, just, just a few things, but go to the site and there's, uh, uh, there will definitely be uh, that and more there. Right on. And Ian, I, I got to bring this up. I had Cliffy on the pod last week and uh, I compared you guys uh, editor tandem to the uh, Boston Bruins tandem. And he said you were the, the Yarrow Halak of that tandem. So what do you think about that? <laughs> okay. I played just as many games as, you know, you, I'll, I'll mention that Halak played almost as many games as Rask for the past couple of seasons. So, so it might be closer than it seems there, but uh, um, I'll give, uh, I'll give props to, to Cliffy any day of the week. He's a, he's a hell of a good fantasy hockey writer. So, um, so yeah, if I'm, if I'm the Halak to his Rask, then I'm, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's, that's not as bad of a, as, as, as a dig as it might seem like. Yeah, no doubt. I, I joke that uh, maybe you carried the site back in 2010. Um, Ian, uh, again, thank you so much for coming on the pod. All right. Well, thanks for having me, Steve. Right on. Stay safe. Okay, everyone. That's our show. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you're listening to, please like, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Stick tap to Ian Gooding for coming on the pod and doing another redraft with us. So glad to do the 06 redraft with him, a draft that he was actually at. He was able to share with us a a lot of valuable insights and uh, stories from his time there.